Are you wondering how you can learn more about food? Well, you're in the right place. This is the Chakula Podcast, brought to you by the Root to Food Initiative, a show that celebrates authentic Kenyan dishes and serves you hot conversations about food in Kenya from an economic, social, and political lens. Semanasi kwenye social media, at Root to Food on Instagram, at Root to Food on Twitter, and Root to Food on Facebook. And now, here's your host, Felistas Mwalia. Hi guys, and welcome to the third episode of the Chakula podcast. In the last episode, we had an interesting conversation on indigenous foods with Oyunga Pala. In case you missed it, you can still catch it. Karibuni sana. In this episode, we are going to have an interesting conversation on how food was a fundamental tool in the process of colonization. To have this conversation, we have with us Joe Kubuthi, who has been looking at this subject and has quite a lot to share. He is a production manager, editor, and curator at The Elephant. The Elephant is an Nairobi-based intellectual platform. Thank you very much for creating time to do this podcast. Thanks for having me. You have an interesting perspective on the intersection of the process of colonization and food. Share with us your thoughts on this and why you believe that food was a fundamental tool in the process of colonization. I mean, uh, that's thanks for that question. Really good question. Mm-hmm. I mean, we we often talk about uh, colonization, yeah. and we always and we have tailored it towards you know the political and so economic subjugation of our people. Yeah. But the reason why I tie food in particular to the process of colonization for one, two things. One is for us to get a clear understanding of what imperialism and later what we call colonization is and when it started, but two, to also get the derivatives or the forms in which colonization took place. For instance, if we were to take to understand how food and its legacies have taken place, we were to understand the definition of colonization yeah. to also mean the political, economic, and cultural subjugation of a pool by another people. Yeah. But importantly, if we look at the legacies of colonization, mm-hmm. the lens of food, we were to, to know when it started. Uh, we often talk about colonization as it, starting from 1885, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But if you look at, for instance, maize as a crop was introduced in Africa in the 15th century. Yeah. And that interaction with maize is what is what we see the, the history of colonization beginning all the way from 1492 and still taking part even today. When we're talking about, we should talk about later, for instance, the idea of, you know, why people are controlling seeds and, neo, and neocolonialism. Mm-hmm. That is because still to date, the logic of coloniality mm-hmm. is still intact in society. So if we taking the lens of food, mm-hmm. uh, for me, is actually a... Uh, a clearer way of understanding when imperialism started, yeah. how it pervades itself, mm-hmm. and how it continues. If you take, for instance, the British who colonized Kenya, one is that the British who are going around the world, particularly to look for resources. Yeah. I mean, there's a common joke that we say that outside of colonialism, British food is, is very bland. You know, curry food comes from India. Mm-hmm. I mean, there yeah. are very many staples that come from Africa, so, yeah. right? Yeah, but also, also, we will talk about even just outside of that, food colonialism as also a, a tool of also coloniality. And we say, for instance, in Kenya, Colonel Hats again, when he was conquering the Aembu people, mm-hmm. the use of scorched earth policy to, to break down to break down the Aembu people, to subdue them into the colonial economy, right? But we also see even food imperialism as a tool of classifying beings, in particular Africans and other people who are colonized, mm-hmm. where certain cultural practices were seen as native or barbaric of other others. You know, the, the consumption of tea, for instance, was seen as something of high caste, for instance. Mm-hmm. And it was also a way, it was also a way of classifying the inner Hegelian framework, a way of classifying the what? The the native in a Hegelian framework, you know Hegel, the philosopher Hegel, how he classified uh, the human species. And Africans were at the bottom of the scale and 
the, the white one at the top of the scale. Mm-hmm. So that classification also took place also a culinary imperialism. So if you are native or African for in this case, mm-hmm. and uh, a good case is uh, Charles Ambler in his book, uh, Alcoholism in, in Colonial Kenya. Africans were taking some kind of brew, but uh, the, the Europeans, in particular the church, said this is this is native, this is satanic. <laughs> and then we need to take a uh, wine, you know, like how the, the, the church are taking wine. And, yeah. bread. and that was also classified as a higher culture. So when you look at when you study food and how its legacies, you realize it permeates the whole system of coloniality. Today we're talking about uh, seeds and farming practices. Yeah. But still the same, it's still the same logic of colonialism is still intact. Because you can see clearly that coloniality is still intact with us. This is just concluded this is the reason why I look at uh, food and tied to the nexus of colonialism. It helps you break down and see the whole trajectory of what actually imperialism was and still is today. Wow, interesting facts. The fact that maize was introduced by colonialists, as you have said, what were the effects of the entry of maize on our eating habits and preferences, indigenous foods, and our farming practices? Mm, nice, very good question. Yeah. I mean, some fun facts. Mm-hmm. Maize is Kenya's staple food, right? Yeah. But maize was introduced to Africa in the 15th century by Columbus. And the actual introduction of maize to Africa was actually the connection between two worlds. Mm-hmm. Right? It was the imperial Western world and the rest of, in this case, Africa. Mm-hmm. But in that interaction, which rarely know that interaction between transfer of maize here, what it yielded was, it actually was the exchange good of slaves. So mm. when yeah, so when when actually when uh, when they gave us maize, we gave them slaves. For me, it's a fun fact that any country that is today, if you see maize is a staple, mm-hmm. that's how deeply entrenched colonialism still is in that society. So and we have seen it and how maize has morphed over there. I mean, even another interesting thing is because maize is a high energy a food. food. So yeah. what it, it was good for labor markets. Mm-hmm. It was good for slaves. So you give the slaves when you can you can export many of them. Interestingly, is that maize until 1985, now with now what now we call colonialism, mm-hmm. now Europeans coming to Kenya, is when it was not introduced in what we now call the White Highlands in Central Kenya, uh, North Rift, uh, what we call the the, the breadbaskets of Kenya. Yeah. And the reason for that was because maize again was is was good for labor, so mm-hmm. you give, give the the natives maize. Mm-hmm. You, you, you you plow in some in the European farms and they would give you a few seeds as as a reward. You also go and, you go and plant wow. back in your home. But you do that as well. It's good for labor. So high energy product is good for labor comes. And Were they given their seeds as pay or? Part of it. Not, not all of it, of course. That was part of the wage labor, right? So you're given some money, but also just as a token, you're also given time to go ah. and, go and cultivate in your, own, in your own farm. But that... The, the, Kamaka commission. Precisely. The cumulative <laughs> effect of that. I like that. Yeah. Kamaka commission. But the cumulative effect of that was mm-hmm. that it was a labor tool. So that you give the natives maize and it was good for, for, for labor productivity within the colonial the colonial mm-hmm. system. So it, it took it took that fact within the White High and then today you, we see that still it's legacies within again maize is our step but even in we were discussing earlier yeah. in our high school that it's still because it was still there even in the missionary church and the missionary schools mm-hmm. to to try and cultivate and convert this uh, native into to into a form of into a career catch of a human being. You know, mm. to still to still play within the colonial system. So this is how it was maize particularly affected that farming practices as as well as Ayunga has mentioned last week in his yeah. podcast, mm-hmm. permaculture and the integration between farms and nature yeah. was distorted. Because yeah. what we did is that went the exploitative capitalistic way of, of extraction of food. 
which is you no know, monocropping etc for for extractive markets yeah but that has seen today research is showing that once it's sustainable and it's all it doesn't give you a diverse diverse diet yeah. but also even diverse it creates a fragile ecosystem of food so case in study in the last 50 years when farmers hit africa because of monocropping and yeah. emphasis of cash yeah. crop farming mm-hmm. society is left fragile so the introduction of maize is, is is i think it's we we really we really think about it as a but actually for me it's this symbol of how coloniality is still yeah. intact today but since you talked about permaculture and people living permaculture behind and focusing on monocropping i think the reason as why more people are focusing on monocropping is because agriculture is now capital driven yeah which, which is which is we'll discuss it further but which which is which is dangerous we, we need to remove agriculture from the control of the market and take it back to the commons where looking at agriculture and food systems as mm-hmm. a public good yeah and because if I, because as we have seen as well i mean mm-hmm. in not just even in kenya but even for instance in america only 1% of the population mm-hmm. 1% of the population are what you'd call farmers yeah mechanization and stuff it creates a fragile society whereby it it lends itself to control of capitalist monopolies and as we have seen with with companies controlling seeds yeah. etc and it creates a very fragile because food is, is such a basic idea and item that it's it's very basic to who we are you know when you're hungry it's very basic to your humanity and we can't we can't delegate that to the market or you can look at the market yeah mm-hmm. or, or corporations mm-hmm. it has yeah. to, it has we have to remove it it has to be part of the uh, it has to be part of the public commons and this, this is why maize as well we need to really think as a country whether we want maize as a staple for one what it represents but to its fragility even as a crop yeah it's not it's not as traditional as, as it claims to be so even anytime there's a famine or a shift in the ecosystem particularly now with climate change we really part of thinking about even food nationalism or sovereign food sovereignty we really have to even think about questioning uh, whether this is a viable staple for us as a people going back again you've talked about monoculture and focusing so much on maize do you think that as kenyans we've lost our food cultures and to what extent as it's a mixed bag i mean yeah. it's a mm-hmm. mixed bag i mean to, to a certain extent we we have because i mean because of the introduction of other cultures and coming them food it is you know especially yeah. in the in the urban area some of the foods we eat some of the taste buds of acquired are very for and that's not entirely a bad thing but if you look at it in terms of for instance a good example is that out of 200 or uh, 200 crops mm-hmm. that were previously cultivated in Africa mm-hmm. we have lost all of them we have at least maybe 20 that if you look at the food gene bank in Kikuyu only have 20 out of the 200 i mean talking about you know the ethiopian kale talking about the spider plant in Africa yeah. and these were highly nutritious food crops that were very very unique to our ecosystems yeah. we have lost them so to that extent we have lost and maybe to things. add on that i believe spider plant used to grow naturally Precisely. yeah yeah to that extent i've lost that but to that extent as well culture is resilient so particularly if you go to the peripheries of society yeah mm-hmm. you're able to see still uh, vibrant food cultures you know you're able to see i mean and some of them are even today if you look at society mm-hmm. they're coming back for instance traditional burgers that we yeah uh, to eat, but they're becoming even popular within within urban markets yeah and, and, and another interesting thing is that the farther away you go from the east african railway mm-hmm. the more indigenous and the more fantastic food becomes because again they were away from 
what you'd call the the colonial belt. The further oh, you go from yeah. there, the, the tastier food becomes, and the the better it also becomes. So the more nutritious. Precisely. So in that, I don't, I don't think so. I, I think it's I think it's a mixed bag, mm-hmm. and I think even as people become more aware of of the identities etc., there's a resurgence of indigenous food crops within our modern ecosystems. Uh, Samir Amin, the the late Marxist, I mean in his book "Only People Make Their Own History." He says that in the last 15, 10, 15 years, there's been what he calls the Great Awakening. And this has been to a large extent because of the weakening of capital and the center. So as it as imperialism mm-hmm. shrinks yeah. and its own contradictions, and the contradiction, it, it collapses, mm-hmm. uh, the peripheries, the, the outposts are beginning to reclaim their suppressed, lost, and hidden cultures. I think what we're seeing today is, is part of the conversation we're seeing today mm-hmm. is the resurgence of of people's cultures and that's also taking place even in, towards their diets etc yeah mm. wow okay interesting Drew. i have another question for you but it's actually out of context of food being history do you think the struggle there's a lot of struggle to control food seeds and other inputs of production in kenya i mean the simple answer to that mm-hmm. is what the late thomas ankara said look at a plate of food and whatever you see is imperialism So mm-hmm. the simple answer to that is imperialism never ended. That's a simple answer to that. There's no a simple answer why food is still they still want to control food. But the more complex answer is that capitalism as a system yeah is its logic is extractive, its logic is control and its logic is domination and it desires to commodify everything it gets its hands on. So what what we are seeing is just a continuation yeah. of the capitalist mm-hmm. logic towards things that previously we didn't think things to commodify we're seeing it as well we've seen it as well with water when we're seeing it with water we've seen it with uh with things even air pumps in the future you know things that as human beings we thought are part of the commons public goods thing yeah. so we are saying that that's the more uh, nuanced answer for in the for instance the corporations mm-hmm. 20 years ago they controlled only 16% of the seed base now they're controlling up to 70% of wow. seeds we're talking about intellectual property distribution yeah. food mm-hmm. control so i mean if we continue on this bizarre kind of logic I mean, we are point where I mean, co- less than 10 corporations in the world will be controlling 90% of what we eat, how we eat it, how we sell it, and of course the whole the whole supply chain, which is very very extractive. Yeah. And that's I think what I said earlier. We need to be very keen about as a society. We need to control put it about towards our capitalistic logic of commodifying even our diet. We are all familiar with names like Delamaya, Don Home Zimmerman all of whom were colonial big time farmers around Nairobi have we succeeded to remove their colonial farming legacies from our midst <laughs> so it's i think it's a very mm-hmm. very complex question mm-hmm. i think yes and no no because i mean coloniality never ended so in in spite of us saying that uh, the white white master beberu as we, as we called them have left the the systems that they planted are still intact So I mean for until 2013 14 at the Lemea farm was still in hands of uh, the Delamea family. No again because again even with that population of likes of Delamea mm-hmm. don't know see there has been a integration mm-hmm. between uh, what uh, some would like to call uh, the global capitalists mm-hmm. the comprador bourgeoisie mm-hmm. and the petite bourgeoisie in our cases our political class yeah. and there has been an arrangement of some sorts between the yeah. two of them and how they have perpetuated this coloniality i mean currently as we are speaking uh, Motoka Ogada and uh, Bayer wrote a book two years ago 
the big white conservation lie. And they Dutch documented how conservation in northern Kenya mm-hmm. has been used for as a land grab, right? And we are seeing places like like Kipia, northern Kenya, how we're actually seeing that actually uh, a lot of land is being given to global corporations and of course political political families and entities yeah. are grabbing mm-hmm. that land. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes, to the extent whereby at least there's an awareness to it. Certain spaces that they were occupied have been released. I mean, as we saw, in, even as far back as 63, with the one million, one million uh, acre fund that uh, the Kenyatta, Kenyatta One regime started, yeah. mm-hmm. was a lot of land was bought back that belonged to to many of these uh, white, previously white land, large mm-hmm. land landowners. Yeah, mm-hmm. land was bought and. Some of it, unfortunately, was not transferred to the people. Some was, but I mean, so it, I think it's again, it's really nuanced and a mixed bag, and it's not really yeah. a clear yes no answer. But all in all, I don't think we have. I mean, mm-hmm. it's leading towards the no because of because of the logic of coloniality that's still intact today. In closing, what are some of the interesting aspects of food and land utilization that you are seeing around us, and how will these shape the future of farming and land use in the near future? I mean, another, another interesting fact mm-hmm. is that today currently, Africa has 65% of all global arable land. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you're looking you're looking at a, in a context where Africa might become, because we are, we are not, unlike Europe and America, we're not an industrial society, we are an agrarian society. Mm-hmm. But we are impo- not imposing, but that agrarian society is morphing and may become technologically advanced. Joe, because m- maybe of, you can explain to the listeners what an agrarian society means. I mean, our base societal logic mm-hmm. is agriculture. Mm-hmm. So our primary activity as, as an African mm-hmm. society is that mm-hmm. we produce food. Agriculture is our, is our basic economy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what I mean by agrarian. Okay. So when you now employ technology on that agrarian society, mm-hmm. our society is going to develop with these two parallel sectors, primary sectors, agriculture and technology, you know, with the employment of ICT, ETC, we're saying it with MPESA and all these other things. Mm-hmm. So how that will affect land use and land use and agriculture, that we are likely to see the better logic is us emphasizing small-scale permaculture yeah. because mm-hmm. small-scale farming, research has shown, is the best viable agricultural use in our society, right? Yeah. But also to do this, also we have to start thinking about certain, we have to start thinking about policies around the distribution of land. Yeah, yeah. Because mm-hmm. we're seeing also the pressures of, of land. Also starting to see things, for instance, again, about agriculture, things about our supply chains. Uh, 875% of our food rots before it hits the market. Yeah. So we have to really think about things like markets, about storage etc right but and, and also the whole distribution supply process chain, yeah. precisely yeah but but more importantly which is i think a very fundamental debate around land use and farming is we need to have the conversation about land in particularly in this country and some parts of africa because there's a land resource tension that's that we're facing yeah and mm-hmm. it's not because we have scarce scarce land is because of certain uh, interests, you know, political yeah. interests and corporate interests that are controlling large, large parts of large tracts of land. Yeah. And some of them is not. Some of the land is just lying fallow. So yeah, maybe, maybe to interject. Today I had a very interesting quote on. In the near future, we are looking at a farming system which will have more small-scale farmers precisely. rather than a few farmers with la- with huge lands. Mm. Yeah. Precisely. I mean, many, many research, research has shown when the Katabaki uh, wrote, wrote a piece uh, saying, arguing that small-scale farming has has proven no, not just anecdotally, but even by research purposes, mm-hmm. it's it's the most effective way of agriculture, particularly. In a peasant society like us in Kenya, yeah. mm-hmm. so I think in a nutshell, I think even just to to just augment that, we also need to have a really robust debate about land reform to just to release 
a lot of tied up land that's in, ha- uh, in hands of politics and corporate interests, land distribution, mm-hmm. uh, land distribution laws and policies, so that we can uh, a huge swath of the population can now begin farming and becomes a culture. So that's, that's what I think in terms of uh, farming and land use. As you give your parting shot, what role do you think Kenyans have to play in restoring and safeguarding food sovereignty? I think to start with, uh-huh. Kenyans are the victims, are the victims and have been victims yeah. mm-hmm. of the colonial state, but also of capitalistic interest towards food and towards their farming practices. Mm-hmm. To start with, to move the debate along, mm-hmm. I think Kenyans need to start having these conversations around and uh, the indigenous crops, ETC. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And hopefully these conversations can lead to a cultural revolution because eventually we, we need a food philosophy. Yeah. You know, we need a food philosophy for how we, we don't have a food culture. And I and eventually once we have a food culture, it'll become local, it'll become, there'll be ownership. And then, and there, down the line, therefore, it'll be, they'll bring dignity to, to ourselves as, as Kenyans, right? Because now we feel this is our food, our food culture, we own it. And that dignity is what I think, that distortion of dignity is what I think will bring our food sovereignty. I have actually learned so much, so much from you, Joe. We should organize another session. Thank you for your insights. Thanks for having me, Faith. Thank you so, so much for tuning in. See you next Friday for another exciting episode. Follow us and subscribe to our channel, Chakula Podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes. If you have any queries, write to us on info at truetofood.org.